Do you know why? Spare a thought for those slightly faded celebrities. And I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. Well, actually, no, they don't want to be out. They want to be in so we can see them. All sorts of scary, strange things to do. I saw them with their plastic heads on and the tarantulas, were they inside or outside? I don't know. It was terrifying. All sorts of strange people around. Why? Well, they want to get back up that greasy pole, don't they? They want to be celebrities again. They want to capture the old magic and they want to secure their financial future. Or more tellingly this week, all those BBC employees wondering why they have lost their leaders and why the government hasn't. You know how it works in your own experience. Perhaps some of you are in the working kind of world in Evangelical Alliance. Uh, We are members now, thankfully, of investors in people. And uh, we had our assessment this last couple of weeks. Great to have it. But one of the things that you have to demonstrate when you get this little triangular award, I must screw it to the wall now, we've got it, but I haven't put it up. You have to be able to demonstrate that you know what your business is. You have to be able to say that you know what you're about. You who are students, who are studying. The key to motivation and to keep going is that glimpse of the future and that understanding of just why am I sitting here in this lecture on this day and how does it fit into the jigsaw? You can cope with almost anything if you know why you're doing it. So why do we do what we're about to do around this table? tonight. You see, how about if I turned the question around and I asked it of those of us in church. Imagine as you leave, it's a drink and dismal night so it won't happen, but imagine that as you leave the doors the media pack are assembled. Oh, it's not that they've heard about Nidri, maybe they'll get that news later and maybe the target will grow as the week goes by, I don't know, it's extraordinary even this last hour or so. But uh, there they are with their microphones, the lights are on the door, the camera bulbs are flashing as you burst out of the door. And uh, actually it turns out that there have been some of them in here this evening and they're asking you, you did some strange stuff tonight. We saw you. We watched you. Why did you do it? You were singing songs in public. We only ever see that in the football and the rugby. What's that about? You read a book out loud a couple of times in the service. That's an even odder thing to do. A book that's the best part of 2,000 years and more old. And you read that in the contemporary... What are you doing? Why do you do these things? One or two people do their work on the platform and hey, a dozen people get all the money. What's all that about? You saw them. They were coming around. They took it away. Where did it all go? It's not here. They'll ask the question, why? And then uh, you close your eyes and you talk to someone who isn't there but you say who is. What are you doing? Why do you do it? And then to cap it all, you listen to a long talk in the cold. Why? 
It reminds me of a, a little girl um, in church who was a bit fed up with being in church and kept asking as they do, why? Why? What's that about? What's happening? What's going on? All the way through the service. Why? And every stage, Dad explained patiently, oh, that's what this is about, that's what this is about. And then came a moment when the preacher got into the pulpit and with a great flourish, took off his watch, inspected it, and placed it on the lectern in front. Oh, why? Why? Why did you do that? What does that mean? And Dad said with a very heavy sigh, that, he said, that means nothing at all. You see, very especially tonight in these few minutes when we will meet round this table, when we will share bread and wine. Why do we do what we're about to do? These bits of broken bread passed around, that red drink shared together, all surrounded by prayer. We give it lots of different names. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper or Eucharist. It's the Greek word for thanksgiving. It's a greeting. What is it all about? What is this community doing? Paul's letter of 1 Corinthians to his friends in another major city, rather like ours, shows us some things. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's on page 1152. page 1152 and verse 23 to 26, just this little section where Paul explains why we do what we do. For I received, verse 23, from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's hold that in front of us and pray for a moment for God's help to understand these things. Father, we thank you for these moments tonight. We thank you especially for this great day We thank you for this celebration that we're preparing to enjoy together. We ask now as we consider Paul's words to his friends there and then in Corinth, by your spirit, here and now, to us in Edinburgh. Would you speak to us? Help us to understand. Help us to explain why we do what we do. We pray it. For your name's sake. Amen. Three things then, as we investigate what this community is doing. The first thing this community is doing is remembering. So there is this dimension of looking back. Remember 
we look back. And of course, we look back to the Lord Jesus Christ those 2,000 or so years ago. We look back to what he went through. The pain and the suffering on the cross supremely for us, which we shall shortly remember at Easter time. Suffering beyond human comprehension, actually. Suffering at a depth and a power that we can hardly begin to understand. What did he go through? And who was he that went through all that pain and suffering? For other people, not for himself. When he didn't have to. When it wasn't his responsibility. He took it on himself. It's been a fascination all the way. And if you've been a fan of films about Jesus, perhaps in the last hundred years or so, you will have seen the way that different films have pictured Jesus going to the cross. I gather Mel Gibson's new film, The Passion, is on its way. I once did a study of the Jesus films, and they're fascinating as you watch them one by one. And they they often tell you a lot about Jesus and what he went through. You can often see the filmmakers and the actors trying to get into his world and into his mind and understand what's happening. Along the way, they actually tell us quite a bit about the world and the time when the film was made. Uh, So there's one very famous one with Robert Palmer as Jesus, and he was the celebrity and everybody else was uh, somebody nobody you knew particularly. And then for the next film, they they kind of reversed it, and they had uh, Jesus as an unknown Spanish student, and then everybody else was a celebrity. So you couldn't concentrate on Jesus, because you're always sitting there thinking, oh, look, there's so-and-so. Uh, and there's this person, and there's that person, and you're spotting the stars all the way through the film. Uh, and you, again, you end up with the very memorable moment with uh, John Wayne, it was, as the centurion, looking up at the cross, and uh, I can't quite do the draw, but it's kind of spoiled the words sometimes. You know, Surely this was the Son of God. And you, you really struggle to take it seriously after you'd seen that. And then there were others like Jesus in Montreal. And here is Mel Gibson's reflecting our contemporary desire to get back to the original. A lot of it's in Aramaic. And there are subtitles. But also reflecting the peculiar violence of our world at this time. I've seen only a glimpse of it, but I gather it's a very violent film. And indeed, Jesus went through terrible violence for us. We remember, you see, these things. And supremely, of course, as we meet round this table, we remember what it means that he did it. In his own words, as he prepared for that dreadful time, he sits down with his disciples and Paul repeats these words from the Gospels. And he says, this is what I'm doing. Here's what's going on. I'm giving my body for you. The fact that my blood is going to be poured out means there's a new deal on the table, a new covenant, he calls it a new basis for a relationship between God and people, removing the curse that human independence and sinfulness has brought on our world and our lives, our relationships and our environment. That's what I'm doing as my body is going to be broken on this cross and as my blood is going to be shed. Now somewhere here this evening, someone's favourite film was the one that took the film world by storm last year. 
Pirates of the Caribbean. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, Maybe you've only seen the Disney version. I urge you to see the surprise hit of last year. But it's extraordinary how one of these Disney stories parallels the Bible's big story along the way. Things have gone wrong and must be put right. And the story, without spoiling it for you, is the story of the pirates who are struggling with the consequences of how badly things have gone wrong and they're trying to put things right. They have to collect all the Aztec gold back together and uh, put it back in its proper place. And there is an extraordinary film scene there when these undead pirates, you'll see what I mean when you see the film, think they can at last put things right. They return the stolen coins. They shed the blood of the girl, the young girl who's acting in it, Kiera Knightley, only 17, incredible. They cut her and they shed her blood, thinking that at last they can put things right. And at last they will be released from the curse. At last they will be free to enjoy their lives again. But although her blood is shed, the magic doesn't work. It turns out that she's not the right person after all. She's not related to the man who had the gold in the first place. You can see the parallels, can't you? I hope I don't spoil the film for you. Only that person, that man, is qualified to put things right. Only this Christ, we remember, is qualified to put things right between people and God and God and people and therefore across the way in our world. So we are a community of remembering as we meet round this table. When we who are believers receive this bread and take this wine, we look back to everything that Jesus did to ensure that we are forgiven and to give us new start with him. That bread equals life. That's what it stands for. I think that would be even true in cultures where they don't eat so much bread, they eat more rice. But it's still understood as a a metaphor, a communication about the thing that you need to live. And the blood, well, the blood is remembered with a red drink. The wine is red. Reminding you that it's the blood of Christ we're speaking about. Oh, here in this church and in St. Thomas's, it was non-alcoholic. That's a gesture of mercy to those of us who struggle with issues of alcohol. But the point is the redness, not whether or not there's alcohol in it. For it was Jesus himself who said, you can't have greater love than this, than to lay down your life for your friends. He did just that, counting you and me as his friends. That's what we remember. That's what we celebrate. That's what Paul passed on. That's what we've received. And that's what he asks us to guard and to pass on to the next generation. That's what Nidri's about. That a future generation, that this generation, will know this for themselves. Even the language Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians remembers Jesus and everything he went through for you and for me. The word for passed on literally is handed over, delivered. If you read through Mark's Gospel, you'll see Mark uses that no less than 20 times. And 17 of them refer to what Jesus did or what happened to Jesus. 
He was betrayed. He was handed over. He was delivered to the authorities. He was delivered to the courts. He was delivered to the cross. He was delivered to the grave. And then the Lord raised him from the dead for you and for me. We are a community of remembering. So when you take this bread and this wine, look back to the Christ whom we remember and give thanks for. Our media pack might ask us, why do we remember? Well, we remember in order to keep going. The Corinthians knew that it was not going to be straightforward being a Christian in their world, and our world is every bit as complicated as theirs, and theirs as ours. Our brothers and sisters throughout the world, and maybe this program on North Korea will sharpen this up tonight, but there are other brothers and sisters in many parts of the world. As soon as you become a Christian, you lose your rights. You're under pressure. This is not a recipe for getting popularity. You're going to find it's much more challenging if you're a follower of this Christ. So why do we remember? So secondly, that we may continue. For we are a community of continuing. So look around when you take bread and wine. Now, we have to be realistic about this. If you were to take 1 Corinthians away and spend some time reading it this evening, you would notice both before and after this little section that I'm looking at that Paul has uh, some hard things to say to his Christian friends in this pretty chaotic church in a kind of really happening city and all over the place culture. Paul is writing to Christians who are full of energy and vigor, all right, but they're actually in some real trouble as Christians. They'd made a great start, but before very long, they'd started tearing one another apart about who believes the right stuff and who's following the right person and who's teaching the right things and who does things the best way and who's the most popular and so on and so on. It was actually not a very pretty sight at all. There is nothing worse sometimes than Christians competing with one another. It's a painful sight for Paul as it is for us too. And they were out of sorts therefore because of their different religious backgrounds. They weren't getting on together. They came from different racial backgrounds. When the gospel called them to demonstrate this new life together, they were falling apart along those lines as well. They had all sorts of different beliefs about what was valid spiritual experience and what wasn't. And about here and now and the future, they were divided even at that level as well. And Paul is urging them in this letter again and again and again to come together again to unite around Christ, around God, around the ministry of the Spirit and the purpose of the Gospel. That's what he lays out before them. He longs for them to understand God's agenda for them. So whenever you drink this, he says, remember that you're called to continue together. He assumes in that little phrase that you continue to do this and this is the thing that brings you back together assuming that you often do it. It's a regular feature of your life together. It's a regular part of a healthy Christian life to meet round the table like this with the rest of God's people, to remember what Christ has done and to seek strength to keep going. That's the point. That's the encouragement. This is the regular mark of the new community of which you are now part Typically, the Corinthians even managed to muck up their communion. 
If you look back at a few verses, you'll see what's going on. They, they actually had a bit more of a meal than this, and it was a shared meal, and some Christians have tried this and enjoyed it, find it really helpful to different size groups. But their feast, before very long, had got out of control. So some people got there early and ate the lot, and then the other ones came later and there was nothing left. And there was all sorts of difficulties for them. And Paul, therefore, explains in these few verses what it's actually about, remembering, continuing. And then he goes on and he has to warn them quite strongly not to get the wrong end of the stick. Again, you see that from verse 27 onwards. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. In other words, you are to recognize what's happening here. The Lord is present here. There's something very special going on here when we remember what he has done for you and for me. You need to recognize that. You must not get the wrong end of the stick about that. And therefore, you must not trample over one another. You must honor one another. You must build one another up. You must look around. You must respect what God is doing in one another. And it won't be the same for others as for you. You must honor Christ's work in one another. Therefore, you share this meal. You will therefore be ready to do business with God as you take this bread and this wine. Now, I'm not for a minute suggesting that the kind of being trampled in the rush world that Paul had to deal with in Corinth is anything that's going on in Charlotte Chapel tonight. Well, plainly not at the moment. Anyway, we're not being trampled in the rush as you come forward to get the bread. They'll bring the bread to you in due course. We recognize that uh, there are different dimensions to this. But it does say something about what state you're in when you come to share this meal towards the Lord and towards one another. That's the point. The Lord is the focus. We are the context now as he makes himself known to us. Oh yes, I know that different churches do things in different ways. You, You may have seen communion done slightly differently from this. I'm an Episcopalian by recent background. Sometimes we meet round a table if the numbers are smaller. Sometimes we'll take a single loaf and break it up between us and a single cup and share it out between us. Sometimes we'll do as we do tonight. Other times people will come forward to the front and sometimes they'll kneel. They'll hold their hands out to receive. They're not bringing anything, they're only receiving. It's those kind of pictures that are so powerful as we meet round this table together. And it's very humbling to watch all kinds of people come forward, united by Christ, from the wealthiest to the poorest, from the most well-off in every sense to the neediest, from those with status and authority and power and responsibility to those who feel they have nothing. And we all come around this table to encourage one another to remember and to continue. That's the focus as we meet like this. We are all united around this table. So remember and look back. But continue and look around. And in that looking around, remember where Christ is. Humanly speaking, he is not now here. He died and was raised And then he was raised 
to sit at the right hand of God. The position of power and authority. The position where he sees over all things. The position from which, whether short or long from now, he will return. But in that position, the Bible shows us that he is the one who may be trusted with all that is going on in your life and in your world and in the world around us. That's part of the looking around. Remember that he is, as it were, above. We are united in remembering that the Lord is with God and therefore with us, every one of us. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He was raised. In the language of the Bible, he is above, symbolizing that position alongside God, upholding the universe, his hand on the whole world. Look around. Look up. Declare your trust in him again as you take these things for yourself. And all along, yes, waiting for that moment when he will return, to wind things up, to introduce that final judgment and that sorting out, to come as the one who knows the whole truth, the real reasons why. That will be joy for believers. That will be judgment for all. That will be terror for unbelievers. That will be justice for everyone. We remember. We continue. Because thirdly, we look forward. We anticipate. We look ahead. You do all this, says Paul in verse 26. Whenever you do it, assuming you're regularly doing, taking this bread, drinking this cup, whenever you do that, you do it until he comes. Until he returns or until you die to be with him, whichever comes the sooner, you do it. But in that sense, it's only a temporary thing that you do. It's not forever that you do this. You won't need to do this in heaven itself. When you're with him there, face to face, amongst his people, in the new heaven and the new earth, in the heavenly city, which needs no light because Jesus is at its centre, there'll be no need for this remembering. There'll be no need to encourage one another to continue because you'll be there. You'll be with him in his glorious presence. For now, it keeps our sights clearly set. And moreover, it is not just for us. You see, everything I've said so far seems to be saying that this is just for those who are believers. And in one sense, that's true. This is the badge of being a believer. You share these things. We meet round the table. We remember the Lord. We encourage one another to continue. We anticipate the future and we look ahead. But actually, Paul says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? What he's saying is that the very act of doing this, in this kind of public way, kind of semi-public, but the very commitment to this is itself a proclamation of Jesus to the world. This is where we came from. This is what we're about. This is what matters to us in the language of your business and maybe others around. This is our mission statement. This is our statement of purpose. 
This is what we're about. This is not just for believers. This is for outsiders too. We want to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because that is the most important thing, so we believe, that has ever happened in the world's history. That is the heart of any possibility of change in our world. And that is the guarantee of the future of a world with him restored as it was intended to be. No wonder old John Calvin, the theologian, talked about communion as a converting ordinance. It's old language. But what he means is, once you get into this, you get changed. Even watching it, you begin to realize how these Christians think. You begin to realize where their trust lies. You begin to see this vision of Christ who went to the cross then, who calls you to continue now and who leads you to the future. It's an extraordinary statement. For here, the heart of the gospel is revealed. And here, everything is changed. So when we meet round this table, when we share this bread and this wine, we will remember and we will look backwards. We will want to continue. So we'll look around and we'll look up to the Lord who is ascended. And we'll look ahead to that great day when we go to him or he comes to us And everything is finally transformed as it was intended to be. See, these are the three marks of the church. The marks of the new community. This little meal shows us what we stand for. Reveals our values. Gives us our purpose. Let's take a moment of quiet together as we meditate on Paul's words and before